Obtén los precios más bajos de la temporada en Macy's en todo lo que necesitas para la primavera, como un 50-60% menos en trajes, blazers y pantalones de sus diseñadores favoritos. Compra más, ahorra más durante la gran venta de zapatos. Recibe un 40% menos con dos o más pares, 30% con un par. Y ahorra un 30-70% en mollas finas durante nuestra gran venta de diamantes. Además, descarga la aplicación de Macy's gratis hoy por aún más precios más bajos de la temporada. Ahorro sobre precios en oferta y liquidación aplican excepciones. Today's episode is brought to you by Podgo. This is one of the sites I use to get ads off of in order to get a little bit of revenue from the podcast. Podgo is probably the easiest way for anyone to monetize their podcast. They provide you with a flat rate for ad space so that you always know how much you're going to get from the ads you present. If you want to go apply, go to podgo.co, P-O-D-G-O.co, and be sure to mention The Great Unsolved in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section. The Oracle Look deeper. Welcome to or welcome back to the Great Unsolved Podcast. My name is Alexis and I am your host. As always, this week we are continuing our deep dive into the proposed unknown Chicago serial killer and we will get into that in just a few moments. First, I want to remind you guys that we have a Patreon and a new thing on our Patreon is you get a t-shirt with our logo and stuff on it if you join at the $10 level and stay for two months or if you join at the $25 level. So that is a new incentive there. Other than that, there are extra bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, early episodes, and that's always worth it in my opinion. We also are on Twitter at Great Unsolved. We are on Instagram at Great Unsolved Pod. We have a Facebook group, Facebook page. Um, I think that's it. I don't know. Our link tree and all our links are going to be in the description, so you will be able to see all our social medias there. Before we jump into the cases we've been talking about, I stumbled across something. Sorry, there's paper in the background. I stumbled across something that I find extremely interesting. It's kind of a conspiracy, kind of just a theory, but many of you have probably heard of Missing 411. I have covered some of those cases and I plan to cover a lot more this year. One of the first cases is that of Dennis Martin. Dennis Martin was a little boy and he was camping with his uh, dad, brother, and grandpa, I believe, and he wanted to scare another family they were with, so he went to hide behind a bush, and he never jumped out. And after a few minutes and everyone was back at the camp, his dad got worried and went to look for him. He ran two miles down the trail, further than the kid 
probably could have gone in that time, and he never found him. And nothing's ever been found of him. This happened in the Great Smoky Mountains, I believe. And the reason I'm bringing this up is I saw a video of someone like saying, oh, I called the police about a family screaming when I was camping in this huge national forest. And they said they would contact the park rangers, but then the park rangers said they never heard about it. And somebody also kind of replied to this video. And she lives right around the Smoky Mountains National Park. And she said there are, I'm not saying this is true or false, I'm just quoting what she said. She said there are feral people that live in national forests. By feral, I don't know if she meant like, I don't think she meant like raised by wolves kind of feral. I think she meant people who just live there, who go undetected. And her claim was that they are cannibals and everybody knows about this. She says local government knows about it and they try to cover it up as much as possible. And if you ask any locals, they know about it. And this got me thinking, if this was true, even though it sounds like something straight out of a wrong turn movie, if this was true, this could explain so many missing 411 cases. I'm not saying there are cannibals in every national park, but think about it. We've had the serial killer theories that there's serial killers hiding in national parks. So why couldn't there be people who kidnap random people and random children in parks, eat them, and then that's why these children or people are never found? It just seemed like an interesting kind of conspiracy story to look into. I don't know if I'll get to it because it doesn't 100% pertain to a case, but if anyone is into conspiracies that have to do with missing 411, please look into the cannibal people of the U.S. national parks. Now, without further ado, we are going to get into the Chicago Strangler cases again. So last week we went over all of the victims. We listed off 51 victims that was from 2001 to 2018. Now there have been some in 2019 and supposedly 2020 and maybe even 2021. This is listed as an active serial killer for many people who believe in the theory and obviously it could very well be that. So we listed 51 people. I stated I believed that 44 were connected. This means I am counting seven of them out. So let's go over a few basic, not statistics, but categories of the Chicago Strangler theory. So Saudia Banks, Charlene Miller were both found in their apartments. Nine women were found in abandoned buildings, nine were found in vacant lots, seven were found in garbage cans, 14 were found in alleys, and 10 were found in various places such as sidewalk, porch, river, park, just it was an array of places. But it seems like this killer never doubled up on a place, if that makes sense. They never had two bodies in the same place. 
so there were four cases with blunt force trauma. That was Diamond Turner, Quandra Critter, Ethel Amerson, and Lucy Set Thomas. There were three with asphyxiation, Vanessa Rajakovich, Diamond Turner, and Antoinette Simmons. There were two that were burnt, Teresa Bunn and Hazel Lewis, and there was only one that was dismembered, Nancy Walker. 11 of these women were white, 39 of these women were black, and one was Hispanic. So I'm just going to walk you through my process here. I started off going with the ones that kind of strayed from the overall picture of the MO, if this was one killer. Nancy Walker was the only dismembered victim, so I pushed that to the side. There were two burnt victims, I pushed those to the side. I pushed the three asphyxiation victims and the four blunt force trauma victims. Also the two that were found in apartments. And Rio Holyfield, which was the last case we went over, was not confirmed to be strangulation. So I put that one under may not be connected as well because we don't know if she has the telltale sign of being strangled to be connected to the Chicago Strangler. That's not saying any of these are not connected. But if we take these out, that still leaves 39 victims that are connected to the theory. So technically, obviously, all 51 could be connected. There could have been a lot more. There could have been a lot less. And there's always the idea that even two of these might not be connected. These were all just crazy coincidences. So I believe the killer could have been trying something new with burning the two bodies because they were cases right after one another. So Teresa Bunn and then Hazel Lewis both had their bodies burned and there was no burning in the beginning of the cases, then it was those two and then no bodies were burned after. So it kind of seems like maybe he started with that and then he didn't like it. So he just stopped doing that. Two were found in apartments, and I believe those are probably unrelated to the other 49, as they are far apart in time. So I'm saying the burnt cases could definitely be connected to this theory, because it seems like it happened and then it never happened again. So could be the killer trying something out. The two found in apartments, though, happen a while from each other. So there's like one apartment and like 10, 15 cases, then the other apartment. It might be more than that. I don't have the exact number right now, but my idea here is that it doesn't seem likely that these were connected as the killer has a large MO of killing these women in vacant areas, vacant buildings, places like that where he's not gonna be caught. Whereas if you're in an apartment building, it is much easier to be caught killing someone, obviously. Moving on, I don't think the three asphyxiation victims fit. If this killer tried to strangle them and it didn't work, and then the killer moved to asphyxiation, that is really the only plausible idea I could see here as why asphyxiation was used. However, I don't think this is very likely. They would have had to have planned ahead and would have had to bring materials for it. 
that means you would have to have the bag duct tape to secure the bag around the neck um, you'd have to have at least a few things with you and a lot of people don't carry that stuff around so I feel like the asphyxiation victims were a killer who was planning on using asphyxiation as the primary method of killing rather than strangulation like many of these other cases the three blunt force trauma victims plus four which was diamond because she was also asphyxiated so i already counted her case out so the other three could be the same killer as the majority blunt force trauma is something I think killers could and do readily go to when their original plan doesn't work. It is so easy to grab something random off a table, out of your car, out of a dumpster, off the side of the road, and hit someone extremely hard with it. I don't think this takes any planning. I think this is more a heat of the moment type of killing because it's not always certain that the person is going to die. Sometimes it just knocks the person out, so it wouldn't be foolproof. And it's just not something that a calculated killer would do. So this could be after the killer tried to strangle them and it didn't work. They moved on to blunt force trauma because they were either angry or they just needed to kill the victim because they already saw who their killer was. So I think it's very likely those people are connected to this theory. I think that me counting out the three asphyxiation victims makes a lot of sense because Diamond Turner was almost certainly not the victim of the serial killer due to Arthur Hillard being arrested for her murder. So it doesn't mean he did it. It doesn't mean he didn't do it, but if police had enough to arrest him on and try him on, then it's most likely she wasn't a victim of the serial killer. She just had things that connected to it. But once again, she was an asphyxiation and blunt force trauma victim, so it's kind of 50-50. Now we're going to go into a kind of profile of what the killer could be. This is in no way a science, and if you look at even expert criminal profilers, you're gonna see this is in no way a science. I just read the book, oh, I think it was called Whoever Fights Monsters or Whoever Hunts Monsters. I don't know. It was by the guy who created the profiling profiling units for the FBI and he described profiling as an art rather than a science because if they describe it as a science it is going to be a very <laughs> bad science sometimes and I am in no way an expert on this I have just done a lot of research for both my book uh, my other upcoming books the podcast all that kind of stuff. So I kind of put what I know together and what lines up with this killer. So my theory is that it's more likely a mission killer than any other type due to victims apparently all being sex workers. 
I have nothing to verify that they are all sex workers, and I don't want to defame them at all. I don't want to offend any of the families of the victims. This is just what I've read in multiple places. But if they are not, then I am not quite sure what connects all these women. But let's move on. So this guy could have a vendetta against sex workers. He could have sexual inability and be angry about it. Or he could have had a very bad maternal relationship. So the vendetta against sex workers would basically go into the idea that he thinks to my newborn baby boy, the day you arrived was one of the happiest days of my life. Right up there with the day I bought my RV from that guy on the internet and insured it with Progressive. <laughs> what a deal. Just know, son, I'll always be here for you. And by here, I mean in the middle of absolutely nowhere. In my RV. Protect your baby with an RV policy from Progressive. Take as little as four minutes to see what you could save at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. They are lesser than other people. And he thinks the world needs to be cleared of them. So he starts this vendetta to go kill as many as possible. And in his mind, he is a perfectionist doing the world a favor. But obviously, in reality, he's a monster. And all of his thoughts are completely insane. With the sexual inability anger, he could be someone who suffers with erectile dysfunction or who is somewhat asexual and doesn't really believe it but because of this he could get angry at his inability and thus go after people who have this ability more publicly than others if that makes sense i can't really figure out a great way to phrase it but that is basically what i'm talking about the bad maternal relationship is something we see in a lot of male killers who kill women. We saw it in Ed Kemper's case. He was a very intelligent kid. He was a very, a very intelligent man also. But when he turned 12 or 13, his mom like wardened him off to the basement because she said she was scared of him, even though he didn't do a whole ton. I, okay, I guess he did kill his grandparents. Besides that, he didn't show anger towards his mother, I don't believe, but his relationship with his mother was very bad, and she was abusive, and she always told him how awful he was, and all that kind of stuff, and so he eventually started killing women. There was a lot more going on in there, but I don't have the time to explain it. So if you want to look up the Ed Kemper case, you'll understand more of what I mean. There's also the Ed Gein case. Don't know why killers with the name Ed are popping up in my mind, but the Ed Gein case, he had like a bad relationship with his mom, but he had an odd fascination with his mother as well. So when she died, he like either dug up her body or kept her body. And then that started him to killing and grave robbing, and the nipple belts, and the human skull bowls, and all that weird stuff you hear about. So a bad maternal relationship could have made this proposed Chicago serial killer go after 
women, just in general. It doesn't have to be a specific kind of women, but maybe women who are a little more vulnerable so that he is at a lower risk. Angela Marianne was what I believe his most likely first victim. So whenever you're looking at a serial killer, it's not always the first case linked to them that was their first murder. There is many killers like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, who police believe they had a lot more murders than they were caught for, and they could have started far earlier than we know as their active killing dates. We just don't have that information or we don't have enough evidence to connect it. However, this killer, I believe this first victim, Angela, that is linked to theory was his first victim overall. She was found in the basement of an abandoned building. This is a hidden spot. It's secretive. There's not going to be anyone in the building. There's not going to be people looking at the building, wondering like what's going on in there. There's not going to be a lot of attention brought to it because it's an abandoned building. No one really cares about it. So it is a lot safer for the killer to do their first kill here. On their first kill, they're not really confident. They are just trying to test things out, see how it feels, figure out their fantasy, and satisfy their fantasy. But obviously, after the first time, it just keeps going. So they're gonna go to someplace safer. They're going to take a lot less risks unless they are just just very emotional killers, I guess you could say. I don't know the best way to describe it. But it seems like this guy most likely tried to play it safe just so that, you know, he wouldn't get caught. He just wanted to see how it felt. And then he started to move outdoors, which outdoors is obviously more visible. People can see you there. People can see you kill someone. Even if you are in a vacant lot, cars can drive by, people can be walking through there. There is no certainty that no one will sneak up on you. So that might have upped the thrill for him by starting to kill women outdoors. And then he even moves behind a dollar store. And I don't think it was open at the time, but it was an active dollar store. So it would open the next day you know, and that just gets even more risky. So that might be just upping the thrill because maybe he figured he needed more out of it. He does continue to use abandoned buildings and places throughout, but after Angela, he does move to more risky areas very quickly if these are all the same killer. I believe in 2001, when he started killing, his age range would have been mid to late 20s. This is because this is when your brain, like your brain's still developing, or it's it's almost done, but you're kind of figuring things out from your childhood still. You're kind of like, oh, so that wasn't okay. Or, oh, that affected me in a lot of ways I couldn't have foreseen and I haven't seen until now. So I think it's plausible to think he still 
had the idea that, you know, I love my mom, she loved me too, and then he starts to figure out, like, oh no, she was abusing me, she was this, she was that, and then his rage comes out. Or, I believe at this time, this doesn't really compare to age, but maybe he started when his mother passed away because she was no longer there to control him. So he just began to kill. Now, if we're looking at the other angles that aren't a bad maternal relationship, this could have been around the time that his sexual inability started and he just got so angry from it. Or this could have been the time when he either stopped going to sex workers or got religious in some way, just figured out for himself, not in general, that sex workers are bad and they need to be taken care of. That's could have been the kind of thought process he had. Now, if he was in his mid to late 20s in 2001, he would be in his mid to late 40s. And I think that could explain why things have progressively gotten slower. In the beginning, we look at a ton of cases in the early years, and then it gets slower, then we miss some years, and that could explain him getting older. If we look at the Golden State Killer, he was extremely active for a long time, and then he just dropped off the radar until he was caught within the last year or two. And I think as they get older, they don't have enough stamina, they don't have enough strength really to keep killing like they have been. Or there have been some close calls with getting caught, so they just kind of back off a little. I believe that this killer would live in South Chicago or West Chicago or right in between in like the Southwest area because this is where the most murders are. When we looked at the maps last week, there was a clump in South Chicago, clump in West, and then a few in the North, a few in the middle, a few in the Southwest. So it'd be most likely he was in an area where the South and the West were very accessible for him. He could also be law enforcement or simply have a vast knowledge of crimes. I'm gonna reference back to Ed Kemper. He wasn't a police officer because I don't believe he could pass one of the tests. I, I don't have any of the serial killer information in front of me, so I'm kind of going off memory, but I know about a few too many, so I might be getting things mixed up. I know Ed Kemper was really good friends with people in the police though, so he obviously had knowledge of crime scenes and crime, and he was extremely intelligent. So that's probably why he didn't get caught right away. Then there's people like Ted Bundy, who planned their murders out more, but he was a law student, or I think he was almost a law graduate, but he was a law student, and he planned it out. He knew like what he could get away with in court, what he couldn't, all that kind of stuff. I don't think he was anywhere near as intelligent as Ed Kemper was, but he was intelligent in his own ways. Since these killings have been going on for 20 years now, if they are all the same killer, then I believe 
This person would have to have some knowledge of crime scene forensics and technology and police protocol because otherwise there would be a lot more evidence linking them or a lot more evidence at least identifying some killer somewhere. At least I would think since there's been 51 or in my theory 44 cases connected. These killings probably were also sexual motivation killings, or sexually motivated killings. He was most likely aroused from the fear, because strangulation is very close up. That is a very personal way to kill someone. If we look at cases where people are being strangled, or cases where there's like 20 to 50 to 100 like stab wounds, that normally indicates someone who is very, I guess, passionate about killing this person. Someone who is very angry and just really has something against this person, which would go with all our ideas of the vendetta, the sexual inability, and the bad maternal relationship. He had something against these women and he portrayed it by killing them in a very up-close and personal method. This would also make him feel very powerful, which would link back to him maybe being bullied or abused by his mother or at school or something like that. Also known as him not having any power at that point in life, so now he's taking all the power he can get. He would probably be single, or have a failed marriage or a failed long-term relationship because of his just intense beliefs. Um, I believe he would be an intense person who might have anger issues just from looking at the cases. And his sexual inability probably played a part in that if that was something he had, but it would be very rare, I would think, or very unlikely that he would be married or in a happy relationship while killing all these women so brutally. I don't think he would be highly intelligent because he was premeditated, but he wasn't premeditated enough to not use strangulation. Granted, there's not been any evidence that the public knows of that links him or multiple people to the strangulation. So maybe they were premeditated enough to wear gloves or something like that. So they were premeditated enough to not leave evidence, but they were not premeditated enough to have like a foolproof plan of killing because he obviously used blunt force trauma sometimes, burned the bodies, there's an array of things going on. So I think his IQ would be more normal. He wouldn't be highly intelligent like an Ed Kemper, and he wouldn't be highly unintelligent like a Henry Lee Lucas type killer. So that is my kind of ideas on the case that went into what victims I think are linked, what ones I think might not be linked, why I think they might not be linked and what I think the killer would be like. Next week, we are going to go over theories that other people have. 
I am going to look on theories in news places, in the websites I mentioned last week, in Reddit forums, that kind of thing. If you have a theory about this, you can email me at thegreatunsolved at gmail.com and I would love to hear it and read it on next week's episode or anything like that. Before I go, remember to follow us on Twitter at Great Unsolved, on Instagram at Great Unsolved Pod. Join our Patreon for new content, exclusive content, and to get a t-shirt if you stay for two months or more at the $10 tier, or if you join at the $25 tier. Overall, I think this is a good group of cases we have jumped into, and I think the theories are going to be very interesting next week. So stay safe and have a great day. So, how does it feel when you play Roll Up to Win with Tim Hortons? Buy a hot or cold beverage using the Tim's app and find out. Roll in the app for a chance to win prizes ranging from free coffee and donuts to a Universal Orlando Resort vacation or a sweet car. Oh, don't forget the TV. And this year, every roll is a shot at a $1,000 daily giveaway drawing for two $500 prizes. Roll up to win and get treated by Tim's. No purchase necessary. Account registration required. 50 U.S. and D.C. 18 plus entered by 4223. See rules at rolluptowin.com for free entry of full details. Void in Florida and where prohibited. With your choice of select sandwich, nugs, fries, and a drink, Wendy's $5 Biggie Bag is your go-to. Your nugget wingman. Your hot and crispy fry co-pilot. Just like us. We're like the bag boys. What? Bag boys, bag boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do when we bring your food? (sighs) For a deal you can count on, bet on Biggie and choose wisely. Choose Wendy's. Bag boys, bag boys. U.S. price participation may vary. Includes choice of double-stacked JVC or crispy chicken sandwich with four-piece nugs, junior fry, and small soft drink. Third-party delivery pricing may be higher.